What would you do if you were scheduled to teach a class of 75 students and discover that several very expensive textbooks would be required to address a full range of course topics? In this episode, we talk with someone who responded to this challenge by having her students write their own textbook as they progress through the course. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Jessica Kruger, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Community Health and Health Behavior at the University at Buffalo. Welcome back, Jessica. Thank you. Happy to be back. Today, our teas are? Not today, but maybe a little bit later to relax thinking about all of the stuff I need to do before the start of the semester. (laughs) (laughs) And I am drinking Rose Garden Black Tea that you brought back from Epcot. I'm drinking the same thing. We're having a tea trial this afternoon. It's one of the blends that they only sell at the Twining store in Epcot, I believe. Yeah, and it's a nice counterbalance to the lovely weather we have outside. (laughs) We've invited you here to discuss the Open Pedagogy Project that you ran last semester in a class with 75 students. Once again, scaling things to a higher level than people normally do it. Could you tell us a little bit about that class? This class is a 300-level public health course, and it's titled Methods and Mechanisms in Public Health. It covers three main topics. So we start out with environmental health, and then we move into information about health theories and health behavior theories, and then we end with health disparities. And so with this class, there was not one single book that would encapsulate all the topics. Instead of having the students buy three or more different books, I started to think, well, what else could I do? The natural thing is to have them write their own book. Of course. Why not? I think the cost of textbooks are continuing to rise. And especially with this sort of course that's specialized with these three different areas, I don't think I would ever find a publisher that would make something quite like that. So why not write your own? How did you pick the topics that were included? And how did you get going on this project? So I actually heard about open pedagogy and writing a textbook with your students at the CIT conference that happened last year. And I was really inspired by Robin DeRosa and what she had done. And so immediately after hearing from her, I thought, I bet I could do this. At that time, I don't know if it was deranged because it was the end of the semester, or maybe it was a stroke of brilliance, probably a mix of the two. But I thought, let's figure this out. Let's see how to do this. And so as I was looking over the syllabus and the topics, I started flipping through other textbooks. I started looking at other resources that were available and began to put the topics together. And I broke it down by the weeks of the syllabus. So my students were actually writing the textbook before they learned the content, which to them was very scary. And for me, a little bit scary, too. But the great part is they actually had to go out, they had to find resources, they had to put it together. And as I was building this, I created Google Documents and made skeleton outlines for the chapters. And that's how they kind of got started. 
So you created the skeletal outlines and then they fleshed it out? Yes. Literally, the outlines were a title of the chapter, some objectives, and headings, different headings of sections. I attached some information in each Google Doc, some resources that were out by the CDC or other peer-reviewed sources that I thought could be helpful. And of course, I invited them to come meet with me, especially if they had no clue what I was talking about with this topic. And within each week, did you have a subset of students work on it or did you divide it up among all the students? How did you arrange that? So with this class, my very small class of 75, which is actually my smallest class this past semester, I broke them up into groups of four to five students. They didn't get to choose their groups, but they did get to choose their topics. As they went through and looked at it, we broke it down and said, okay, this group, decide what is your top picks. And they could choose and they knew the order of the chapters. So if they wanted to get it done out of the way, they could do it at the beginning of the semester or wait till the end. And so each group worked together to make a contract, divide up the work and choose how they were going to execute this. So what worked well about that method and what didn't work well about that method? Oh, students love group work. We all know that they love group work, right? If I could figure out the secret to making it go smoothly all the time, I guess I would probably be a millionaire. But nevertheless, I think there were some strategies that did work well. And the fact was, I had them make a group contract. Barbara Oakley actually has an article called How to Work with a Couch Potato. And in that article, it talks about how to deal with someone who's not pulling their weight and how to create a group contract that's actually useful. And so the students worked together with their group and talked about how they're going to evaluate each other. I didn't set up a peer evaluation, they did. And they also broke up what they were going to do. So as they were creating this chapter, they would all write in a different colored text. So one student was green, one student was orange. And so they could see visually what each person did. And my caveat was, if someone drops the ball, they drop the ball. You don't have to make up their work. As long as it's stated in the group contract, that is fine. If they don't do the summary, they don't do the summary. Your chapter doesn't have a summary. That's okay. How did that work? Did everything get completed? Actually, we only had one chapter, I believe, that doesn't have a summary. And most everyone did their part. There's always some squabbles back and forth. There were some groups who did really good strategizing and had someone go back through and create one voice for it. Other groups didn't. But overall, it worked out quite well, breaking it up that way, but also giving them that out, realizing that they didn't have to make up something that someone else didn't do. So how did you handle chapters that weren't fully complete and you needed the other students to read those chapters? I had a wonderful TA last semester. And the chapters would be due about a week before they needed to be put onto UB Learns. She would alert me to anything that was going on or anything that should be changed. And I would look over the chapters and then I would bring in some other content or modify it. But overall, they actually did a really great job of putting this together and finding sources. You mentioned UB Learns. UB Learns is actually our Blackboard learning management system. So they would author it in Google Docs. And then I would take that and create it so that they could comment on it, but not actually edit it. And this allowed them to get feedback from their peers, which we plan to preserve the feedback 
for the next time this class is taught. So this book is a living, continuing iteration. So as the students were reading the chapters as assigned reading, is that when they were providing the comments and the feedback? Yes, they would go through and we had some very astute grammar students who would go and fix different commas and also ask for more explanation, which was excellent. And I could actually use that in my teaching to talk further about areas where I could tell that students needed more help. Did the original writers go back and fill in some of the gaps at that point? Sometimes they did, but for the most part, we left it as it is. We used version one, and the plan is for the students who take this class next to take those comments, continue adding, continue changing, and revamping this book. So there'll be multiple versions for each semester that it's taught. Can you talk a little bit about how you handled copyright and giving credit where credit is due for each of these chapters and how you might handle that in future iterations? Overall, the class worked together to figure out their Creative Commons license. And what they chose was a CCBYNC essay, which means people must attribute and give credit. It's non-commercial and it's share alike. We talked about this as a group. We learned about copyright and they all actually signed a contract as if they were publishers, as they are. We discussed how to attribute content. Some chapters did it one way, some chapters did it another way. So you'll see in-text citations in some areas, and in others, you'll see this was modified from the CDC's website at this location. And so some of it was actually openly sourced information that was reused. Now, this is their first time writing a textbook, so can I stand behind that everything is completely cited perfectly? Absolutely not. But they did a good faith effort to make sure that their information was cited properly. And there is a little note at the bottom of each page listing sources and saying that to the best of our knowledge, this is not subject to copyright. If you find anything that appears to violate it, please notify us. So there is a procedure for addressing that stated on each page, I believe. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about how the groups decided to evaluate each other? Yeah. I think group evaluation and teamwork is such a challenge. I myself despised group work as a student and as a faculty member. Sometimes I'm like, ah, I know they need to work with others, but, but really having them create their own contracts and having them evaluate each other on their own terms. So some groups decided that we will do everything perfect and we will come to every meeting. No, that's not a group contract. That's not something that you can actually achieve. But what you can achieve is open communication. And so most of the groups actually used GroupMe or other tech tools to stay in contact. They would set up meetings, sometimes before or after class. They would also work on the Google Doc in tandem. You can actually see when someone else is working on a Google Doc and point out different sources to each other and discuss how they were going to put it together. And so that allowed them to evaluate each other. And most students gave each other pretty high marks in peer review. And I don't know if that's because they all like each other and they've all been in multiple classes together or if it's actually how they feel that this came together. But overall, it happened. It got done. And so I do think they work together pretty well. Some groups, obviously, better than others, depending on their strategy. But having them create the contract, I think, is the important aspect that I've found. 
And you were able to monitor that by seeing the colors of the contributions? Yes. So I had them color code their contributions. And if they didn't color code it because someone was an editor or whatnot, they would note that so that I knew what each person was doing. And then before I would send it out to the class, I would take out all those colors and do some type editing. But overall, each of them were contributing. And most of the students in the class are juniors and seniors. So they're upper level students. Did you have students evaluate each other at the end of their contribution or at the end of the semester? It was at the end of their contribution. And it's fascinating because I asked them during that process, not only to evaluate themselves, but to evaluate this project. And it's fascinating because as I'm going through it, I'm looking at it and asking them, do you think other classes should do something like this? And about 50% said no. At that time, I was like, oh my goodness, is this going to fail? What's happening? Why do they despise this so much? But at the end, when we did an overall evaluation, it was actually overwhelmingly positive. It was all positive about the whole project. So it just goes to show you that as you're in the thick of something, you may see it as challenging, overwhelming. But in the end, when you see that final product, when you see that 19-chapter, over 200-page book, that you've created with your fellow students, that's powerful. You ended up getting your book printed and copies distributed to each of your contributing students. How did you pull that off during the semester you were writing it? Very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) I worked very closely with my TA and I spent countless hours editing and making sure pagination was correct. I think in the end, I probably put in a full work week just getting that together and working with the university printing service. I sent it in. It was excellent. I've never printed a book before, not knowing how to do anything like that. And thankfully, our university had some funding to allow me to print books for all of the students. And to see their faces when they got that book was just outstanding. I actually created a celebration. And so I invited the director of the program, the dean, the chairs, and even people from OER services at SUNY. And the students walked in to a cake and people clapping for them. And then I revealed the printed book. So you had to have had the book finished multiple weeks before the end of the semester to make that happen. Well, I was hoping to have it finished (laughs) sooner. But you know, life happens. And so they actually got it on the day of their final. And their first question is after it's revealed is, do we still have to take a final? (laughs) In fact, they did, uh, but uh, it turned out all right. So it was the day of their final, which was a week after the end of the semester. But it all turned out fine. Everyone was happy and they got to eat cake. What proportion of their grade was based on this collaborative work? It was actually about 10% of their grade. <laughs> so, John almost so, a low stakes assignment relatively <laughs> writing a book. <laughs> it was very low stakes, which is <laughs> as you choke on your tea, I couldn't believe that they would do it for 10% of their grade. But in fact, when you take all of these small pieces of writing and put them together, it actually wasn't a huge pull. When you have 75 people writing a little bit at a time. They got into it when they had to do it, but when they were done, they were done. So it was actually just a small percentage of what they had to do. I like to use non-traditional teaching techniques and experiential learning. And so 
This class also took a field trip and did a lot of other exciting teaching techniques. So this book was something that was a small percentage of their grade. That's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) How much time do you think each student actually spent on the writing that they contributed? I would speculate a few hours. They were writing in chapters, and I didn't give them page limits, which was interesting because most groups wrote about six pages on average. Uh, But then you had some groups write more, and they were allowed to put pictures and videos and diagrams because some of these were models. And so some of the chapters were far longer, and some students are more lengthy writers. Uh, Some are more succinct. And so it just depended on the group and what topic it was. Did they also have to present their chapter? They did not have to present their chapter, but they did have to read the chapter. The whole test was based on the book and the presentations that I gave during class on the content. What advice do you have for other people who might want to take on such an adventure? Ah, man. (laughs) I think you should do what sparks your interest and you should really follow your passion. And if this is what you want to do, proceed with caution, but dive in. That seems to be my approach to a lot of these quote unquote weird pedagogical techniques that I like to use. But this was really a joy. It was a lot of work, so much work, not only to set it up and get it ready and then convince students to do it for only 10% of their grade. If you would have seen their faces the day that I said, hey, guys, guess what? We're going to write a textbook. They all looked at me like I was insane. And so did my colleagues. (laughs) That was going to be another question. Has anyone there considered following up with us and doing something similar on their own? I have not had anyone take me up on that. I've had a few people ask me, do you think others should do this? And my answer is usually, you should think about it. It's a lot of work. It's very rewarding. The students get so much out of it. Through my evaluations, the students not only said that this helped them learn the content better than a traditional textbook because it was written by other students, but it also helped build their confidence. They were writing a book. And now they can put that on their Vita. And all the students were so excited because they're going to take it home to their parents and show them what they've done in class. They also talked about just that it was new and novel and how that makes them excited about it. But it depends how much time you have, how patient you are, and what the topic area really is. When you go to do a revision next time you teach the class, do you expect your time costs to be the same or do you expect it to be a bit different now that you have a structure? I think now that I have a process and understand how much time it's going to take versus saying, ah, this will be fine. It'll work out well. I think it will take a little bit less time. But I think with that, you also have to get students buy-in because it's not completely new. It's something else that someone has created. And sometimes that's more challenging to add to it, to modify it, to make it better. But I think it's a good exercise in teaching students the importance of revision and adding to something and building it. Did any students object to having their work being posted publicly or were they all happy with that? They were actually really excited. When we first were doing it, they said, so where is this going to go? I said, well, it's going to be public. Everyone's going to be able to read this. And they looked at me, and at that time, I don't think they really understood what 
open source was completely being on a website and a Lumen platform, being able to see this content. But once it was printed in a book, they said, well, where does it go next? Are we going to print more of these? Is it going to be in the library? I said, well, you just wait. And then I was able to send them the URL thanks to the SUNY OER services who put it together so that the students can now show it to their friends and post it digitally and share it. What kind of Kool-Aid did you hand out the day you talked about this assignment? (laughs) Well, I should mention that all of these students were actually students that I've had previously. And I think having that level of trust and understanding that you never know what's going to happen in Dr. Kruger's class, just be ready and roll with it. I don't think I could have done that with students that I haven't had for multiple semesters. So that trust and rapport was really important in saying, you can do this. I believe in you. Let's do this together. I think without that, this would have been more challenging and students would have said, who cares about that 10%? I'm out. But in this case... They understood and they followed along and they were happy to do it. It was something of a challenge. I think some of the comments in which students told me about this were just amazing. One of the students said that they generally felt this was a great experience and a wonderful opportunity and that experiences like going on field trips and writing a textbook was exciting and made me feel like a kid again in elementary school. It makes me more motivated and looking forward to learning experiences. So I think having novel experiences and having something that's new, but also exciting and exhilarating and ah, a little challenging is good for the students. And they're actually creating something themselves, which by itself should be a little bit more motivating than passively consuming a textbook that someone else created. Exactly. I think the rapport that you mentioned earlier is important, too. I think that's an interesting component to this particular project that some people might not realize how important that that can be. But having that little bit of trust to go on a bigger adventure than maybe they'd be willing to otherwise, I think, is key, but something that we all could be thinking about. Oh, yeah. I think it's so important to make connections with your students. And people do it in many different ways. I'm usually known as being caring, that shameful word in academia. But in fact, I think it's so important. And that's how I can get so much buy-in from students and get them to join me in these learning adventures that we tend to go on. We do have a note to ask you again to come back at some point and talk about the field trip things that you do with these large groups of students as well. But I think maybe we should leave that for a future podcast if you're willing. Excellent. Sounds great. Love being on the show. I don't know if I dare ask our (laughs) final question, (laughs) but we always wrap up by asking what's next. Ah, what's (laughs) next? Well, this semester I vowed to focus on more self-care and I'm actually teaching a new course called Stress and Population Health. And so with that course, I'm trying to take my own advice, which is sometimes the most difficult and only doing a few crazy activities during the semester. So my students will go on more field trips. They will do some experiential learning, but they're also going to be focusing on stress within the college campus and performing some stress reduction tabling around Public Health Week and also learning a little bit more about meditation and how overall in the U.S. we're a little bit too stressed. So with that, I think what's next is we should all take a little bit more care for ourselves to be around for our students and to give a little bit more. So that's where I'm putting what's next. 
that sounds like a good strategy and perhaps a chance to relax a little bit. And I'll believe that when I hear about it later at the end of the semester. (laughs) You have to remember that it has to be in comparison to, you know, like someone's lack of stress is really dependent upon how much stress they generally pile upon themselves. Exactly. So I'm only doing half of what I typically do in crazy teaching, but still, I think it'll be fun, exciting, and looking forward to another great adventure and semester. And you're also doing a COIL course at some point, aren't you? I have currently already done one COIL course, and I have actually just created another COIL connection in Jamaica and have plans to create additional COIL connections so that we can actually compare components of health cross-culturally and cross-nationally. Sounds really cool. And we should note for listeners outside of New York that COIL courses are cooperative online international learning courses where classes pair up with classes from other countries. Thank you so much for joining us again, Jessica, and sharing with us how you rolled this project out and giving us all a little bit of inspiration and a little motivation to do some of this work ourselves. Yes, thank you. I'm still amazed by the 10%, but (laughs) I looked through much of the work that your students have done, and it's a really impressive work. Thank you. They're very impressive students. I'm honored to have work with such amazing people. It couldn't have been done without them believing in themselves and believing in what we were doing was important. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher and Jacob Alverson.